0: Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure, Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Karen Eldad, an extraordinary speaker, author, and coach. I had first heard about Karen from a friend who runs an asset management firm and had taken one of Karen's programs. Now, my friend is pretty hard to please and incredibly discerning. So when they came back and said, Yin, I have a very, very strong recommendation for this program that Coach Karen does. I was super intrigued. And as I got to know Karen, I have really understood why her program is so wonderful. On this episode, we discuss Karen's childhood of traveling the world as the daughter of a diplomat. She grew up living in over a dozen countries and speaks multiple languages. She has served in the Israeli army and got her master's degree from the London School of Economics and also Columbia Business School. Before her coaching journey began, Karen had a super successful career in publishing and then she went on to marketing where she ultimately was head of consumer marketing at IWC watches. She was married, she had a successful husband, and she shares how utterly miserable she was. We talk about her marriage and her divorce and her breakthroughs. And it was from this journey that she discovered her passion and her gift in helping others. Karen only started this coaching business about three years ago. And since then, she has gone on to coach hundreds of superstars, from executives at the Young Presidents Organization, also known as YPO, to JP Morgan, to Christian Dior, and LVMH. I mean, the list goes on and on. But we also discuss Karen's volunteer work as a crisis counselor, and that she's been doing for many, many more years. And what I thought was so interesting was the expertise And also the empathy needed as a crisis counselor, it was just super interesting to to learn all about how important empathy is to that level of counseling. I think one of the most unique things about Karen is her ability to be empathetic, and I think that helps her understand others so much more. She focuses a lot on humility and helping people understand there's so much we don't know. I highly recommend watching her TED Talk called, You Don't Know What You Don't Know. It's fantastic. And it made me realize we spend a lot of time on things, on work and others and mindless things. Let's start with ourselves. It, It really helped me focus a lot on myself, which, you know, you really forget about sometimes. For my superstar listeners, stick around to the end where Coach Karen has a special treat just for my listeners. I hope you enjoy this enthusiastic interview with the superstar herself, Karen Eldad. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Ian. It's great to be here.
0: It is great to have you. In less than three years, you have created quite a name for yourself in the coaching industry, where you work with peak performers and executive teams and help position them to create more impact and more success. There is so much I want to ask you. And before we get into Coach Karen... I would love for my listeners to learn more about you. So I read in preparation of this interview that you are very well-traveled. You speak five languages. How did that happen? What was your childhood like?
1: Oh, yeah. And thank you so much. You're going in for the kill right from the start. So first of all, yeah, you're right. I do train the most intense personalities on the planet, as I like to say. And it's because, as anybody can discern from my particular tonality, I am an intense personality. And I do think that that's a byproduct of the way I grew up. I'm a diplomat's brat. And as a the technical term for it, or the psychology term for it is third culture kid. I grew up in 14 different countries. I was fortunate enough to live in all of them for two years or more. And in order to survive, you have to learn how to speak the language. Now, some of the languages that I learned are now gone. There are Amazing tapes of me speaking fluent Turkish, I have to tell you, 40 years later, I speak no Turkish. But the language that did stick with me are the ones that I use regularly, like English and French and Spanish, and it's actually been very, very useful. I have to tell you, I recommend with all my heart that everybody dedicate time to learning a second language. It changes your cognitive abilities, but more importantly, it lets you relate to people no matter where they are. That makes for a really good coaching experience when you're in, I don't know, Manila.
0: Would you say there's any city or country that you identify with your childhood or not really? I mean, it sounds like you traveled a lot.
1: Well, the big tragedy of the third culture kid is that we don't feel at home anywhere. Our identity is fluid. It's fluid in the sense of culture. But I definitely have a very warm spot in my heart for Argentina. I grew up in Buenos Aires. I spent five years there. They were formative years. I graduated high school there. And you know, it's funny, when you become a mental health practitioner, you learn that for most people, the vivid memories of High school are formed because that's such an intense period for people. And it was the same for me. That's why I love Argentina more than anything. And
0: so after
1: Buenos Aires, where did you go to college? I went home to Israel to serve in the army first, because that was my duty. And then I did my first degree at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which is the same school that my hero, Yuval Noah Harari, teaches at. And then I went to the London School of Economics. And then I came here. I was at Columbia Business School here, and then I started to become a coach. So all of the nonsense education that was extremely expensive flew
0: right out the window.
1: And I started using stuff that was really practical for my life.
0: <laughs> so how did you know you, what you wanted to study and to continue that through more education?
1: That's an adorable question. I had no idea. And if you ask me today, if I had children today, I would say, that's nonsense. Don't even focus on people at the age of 20 are not allowed to make any decisions for themselves as far as I'm concerned. I love them, but this is an exploration period and it must be an exploration period. To ask somebody at the age of 20, what do you want to do and what do you want to do with your life? is and can only be a joke. There are very few and far between anomalies, like, say, Mark Zuckerberg, who stumbles, basically ass back into a situation that does form the next formative years. But in most of our cases, this is simply not the case. I believe that I used the 20s for exploration. I did what I was supposed to do. I was definitely interested also in kind of proving myself, which is what everybody's trying to do, right? No matter who you are, you are living up to societal expectations for a very, very vast majority of your life. And then one day, around the age of 35, maybe even 40, I say this as a coach who sees people usually around that age, you start asking bigger questions like, how about what do I really want? Not how am I going to get from A to Z, but who am I? What do I want? What makes me sing and what can I contribute? And those are vastly different questions and they produce a very different educational focus.
0: So before you came a coach, because you sound like an extreme expert at it, what did you do before coaching professionally?
1: Professionally, I was in publishing.
0: So, How did you end up in publishing? I was,
1: I was in the higher ranks of salesperson, which I still am. I believe anybody in any top position in their company is a salesperson. I fell into it because in 2007, Yin, I came to New York and I did what everybody wanted to do in New York. I watched The Devil Wears Prada, and I wanted to be part of the fashion magazine universe. Now, I was very, very lucky. I immediately land fashion director positions or fashion manager positions that led to fashion director positions, I think because I bought more Prada than anybody else. At Cosmopolitan, I was offered the fashion director position at Vogue that year. I ended up not getting it. Actually, I I was offered the position, but it was rescinded the next day. Because I was not an American citizen, and they didn't hire non-citizens at the time. The best part of the story, and I want to finish it, even though it's a complete digression for your audience, is within three months, the entire management team was let go. And so I want anybody out there who is suffering a temporary disappointment today to hear this. It might be sparing you, not actually, when things don't actually go to plan. Anyway, I stay in the publishing industry until about 2010, when I start to smell a revolution afoot. It's not just after the recession, but magazines and newspapers are beginning to be consumed in a vastly different way. At the same time, I got married. That's a whole other mistake, but let's just follow the rabbit down the hole. I moved to Switzerland, and in Switzerland, I wasn't about to land a publishing job. So I I went in-house. Going in-house means I go to the marketing side of the luxury and fashion industry before I was on the publishing side. So I wasn't in the luxury and fashion industry. I was fashion luxury adjacent. And I joined IWC, the watch company, as their head of marketing. It was the most fun job ever and I enjoyed it enormously. And I still love watches so, so much. But, Yin, this is when my whole life starts to fall apart, and that's when it becomes a very, very interesting story.
0: So it's already been an interesting story. How does it progress, either personally or professionally? You mentioned a marriage. You mentioned loving the job. I'd like to hear the next yeah. phase.
1: Well, like like you, I also did stuff that I was really good at. I was naturally good at a lot of things. I'm a strong project manager. I'm very good with people. I really liked marketing. I've always been a natural at selling stuff that I really like, because I'm the buyer. The buyer always knows how to sell the product, right? Because he could sell it to me. And then I realized at the age of 35, I remember nothing happens suddenly, everything takes a very long time to form. So for anybody out there who thinks that things are sprung on you, that's really not the case in life. In most cases. What really is happening is slowly, we start to Suffer the consequence of decisions that we only took reactively. We just took the next gig and the next gig and the next gig because it was the natural thing and because the momentum got away from us. But we never really made a conscious choice. I alluded before, almost half jokingly, that I followed a hunch after watching The Devil Wears Prada, but I don't think that I ever asked myself, who am I and what am I contributing? I just wanted to fit in and look a certain way. And so I wake up, I'm in my mid 30s at this point. I was married to a tall man with great hair and the right job. And that's what you were supposed to marry in a beautiful big house overlooking a lake in Zurich, which is what you're supposed to have at that age. And I was the head of marketing at a billion dollar company. Everything has been checked off at this point, Yin, And I was absolutely miserable, not ungrateful, miserable, genuinely listening to ABBA and thinking of killing yourself in the shower miserable. And that was the moment where I just realized that, be careful what you wish for, because if you're asking from the wrong place, you're going to get everything you want, and it's going to feel awful. And that's when all of the systems began to collapse one by one by one by one. And as they did, I reached
0: for that which before was unthinkable to me, self-help. So rewinding just a little bit, you had mentioned, and I agree with Everything slowly happens. It's never just an overnight success. It's never just a a quick fix. How long do you think it built up into this kind of formulaic life path for you where you got married and you had a job and you had a lake house before you said, you know
1: what? I cannot answer that question other than to say that if you really start to look back, you will see that one thing led to this thing that led to this thing that led to this thing. There was a snowball and who knows when it started. Maybe it was in high school when I was the only non-rich kid. I was just a diplomat kid and I thought I was rich and somehow I formed a status obsession. Maybe it was that time that I got broken up with at the age of 29 that made me obsessed with getting married as quickly as possible. So many little things. But what happens is our identity becomes reactive over those years. And when we become reactive, we lose our emotional mastery and we lose the clarity of our mindset. And this is where coaching, self-help, personal development, even business development become extraordinarily useful. The first book I read was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's the Bible. It is the origin of all. Everybody should read it every year. By the way, it's a complete lie. It's like 49 habits
0: of highly effective people. And it changed my life. And and here we are. So is that the first book you mentioned in your self-help journey that you started with? Yes, that was the first
1: one. It saved my divorce from being horrible to just being regular bad.
0: So can you walk through the process of whether the divorce or just your help, self-help journey? Was it 10 books and you were cured and you said, let's have a friendly divorce within two months? Or what was that process like?
1: This stuff resonated with me very, very quickly. And I think it was because I just, I was in a place where I was ready to listen. I I believe that that's the case for almost everybody. Coaching takes longer if you're not ready to listen. When I'm looking for my ideal client, it's funny. A lot of people think that you should come to people in the eye of the storm. I don't believe that you should be in the eye of the storm. I believe that you should be ready to say, I could use some help around here. You can be very high. You can be at a different place. It's really just a question of, I understand that what I am doing is not getting me to the next level. And I need some help, and that's where I was. I, I I remember it so clearly. Anyone who's been divorced will tell you this. Most people, because I'm also a suicide counselor and a trauma counselor, I see people going through divorce all the time. For women, yin, they made that decision six months before announcing it. They are like by the time you've said we're getting divorced, you're cool with it, and it's then where you really want to manage the other side and manage yourself through that process, which is very different from dealing with the trauma of having to go through it. And in reading The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the first message, the first message that clicked for me that Stephen R. Covey, God rest his soul, conveyed was, maybe the other side isn't an angry ogre. Maybe he's heartbroken. Maybe there's another way to see this. Maybe he's dealing with failure. And if you can understand what he's dealing with, you might treat him differently. And that's exactly when everything started to change. And when I thought of him not as a person who was out to get me, but as a person who was really, really sad, really going through something difficult. I picked up the phone. I said, sweetheart, I'm really sorry. It sucks for me too. I didn't want this to end this way. I don't want us to be in this position, but we are. I really want to go home. Is there any way... We can talk about this and get to the other side. And I tell you, it went a lot faster from that point
0: on. In your self-help journey, then it was mostly focused on personal versus professional journey? Every system started to collapse after that.
1: One of my big sayings is, and may I please use a bit of French on this interview? Please. Is pray for a shitstorm. Usually systems don't go down once. They go down all at the same time. And there's a reason for that. But the divorce was followed by the dissolution of my first business partner. I lost an apartment. I was broke for five months. I couldn't find a job. And then the few things that I got to pick up in my divorce to keep, I put them in storage in New York and the storage burned down. If that's not biblical, I don't know what is. So with this, through this process, I'm learning more and more and more about myself. And suddenly... Years later, by the way, years and 26 coaches after, later, I remember realizing that the same things were happening, but I was not bothered. I was okay. And once you understand that you're okay, and you understand how strong you are, and you see that you're becoming more and more successful, you can teach other people. In fact, I believe it's my duty to do so.
0: So for those who aren't familiar, can you expand on the difference between all the different coaches? I've heard of life coach and executive coach and business coach and dating coach, but I would love to hear your answer for that. Coach is a
1: person who is there to hold space for you, remind you of your greatness and lead you through a rather didactic process, whether the International Coaching Federation likes it or not, to actionable turnaround of your circumstances or to getting your goals. That's the fundamental difference with therapy, by the way. We are forward-looking, we are finite as a process, and that's what all coaching is geared towards doing. It's to find that light in yourself and fulfill that potential. The differences are really categorical. So as the words insinuate, a life coach or a personal coach is a coach that is there for your personal life dating coach or a love coach, love attraction coach, I've heard as well, is a person who's there to work with you on relationships and on love, like Esther Perel's jam, right? I hear that she's branching into executive coaching now. She's definitely working with sex and love and marriage. And then business coaching and leadership coaching or executive coaching are executive focused. And they're always addendums to personal coaches. So any executive coach, Is and has to be trained as a personal coach first. The reason for that is don't change your mindset. You don't change how you lead because who we are is how we lead. So if you're still reactive and if you're still working from a place of several behavioral blind spots, I mean, I can teach you negotiation tactics until I'm blue in the face, but you're not going to change. So that's why they usually go hand in hand.
0: So you'd mentioned earlier that you are a suicide and trauma and crisis counselor. What's the background on that?
1: That was the first thing I did. So picture it. Karen's life has fallen into a million pieces and she just moved back to New York and she can't find a job and my stuff all burned in a fire. And then the worst thing happened. I had two cats, magnificent white beasts, Nasdaq and Starbucks. Nasdaq died and Starbucks died within two weeks of each other. And this is when all the systems collapse, because grief is a very different animal from all the other animals. It really just brings you to your knees. And so I did at that point what any Jewish girl would do. I went to the Hamptons to reflect. I was very lucky to have a friend who had probably the most beautiful house you've ever seen and it was peaceful and I was alone and I was well fed and that's all I needed for that period. And as I sat there reflecting one morning upon the infinity pool, I had an epiphany and it was, you should go to back to suicide counseling. I did that in the army. I was a suicide counselor on a suicide hotline in the army and I, I was very good at it. I liked it very much. So I joined Crisis Text Line. I went through their training. It's very rigorous. I recommend it to anyone out there who would like to volunteer. There's nothing more gratifying. And I've been uh, back in counseling ever since. And this is actually one of the big parts that starts to, you know, it's it's funny. A lot of people are looking for their purpose, like it's going to fall on you like the Bible from Sinai, but that's not really how it happens. What happens is you get a hunch, maybe I should do this. And from there, you like it and you realize, oh, maybe I should do this and so on and so forth. And suddenly it snowballs
0: and it turns into Coach Karen. Well, so the counseling, the crisis counseling, I would hope and imagine that no one can just be a crisis counselor. Like how much training is involved because it's such a an extreme position to be in? You'd think...
1: But it's an extraordinarily common situation right now. I believe that mental illness is the illness of the decade and certainly going to be the illness of the century. We get 10 weeks of training, and then you are never on the line alone. You are always with a supervisor. In the beginning, you can only take one call at a time. Today, I can take five. I'm a level nine counselor. Other people are really just doing this one at a time and quietly. And it's a very, very subtle Very easy process, particularly because you will literally be intercepted if you do something wrong. I'll give you an example. As a crisis counselor, you can never really reveal your identity. I have a pseudonym and an alias and a whole bunch of other things like that. One time I had a caller from South Dakota and I said, oh, wow, my boyfriend's from North Dakota. I'm a very advanced counselor. There shouldn't be a supervisor watching me. And somebody literally intercepted immediately
0: no personal details. So we are we're never alone. And that's great. How are you effective if there's no exchange where the other person feels like you're giving something to them, sharing information or sharing something personal? Is it just one-sided where you just help them and that's it?
1: That's what they're there for. They're alone and they're scared and they need somebody to listen to them. And you're validating them. You are there for them. What is more profound than one person in the middle of the night who's freaking volunteering, who is just interested in hearing you? I think there's nothing like it, really. I think it's amazing what Nancy Lobelin has started. There's a reason why we are
0: becoming the most popular hotline in the world. And so comparing that type of counseling to your coaching, what are the parallels that you see?
1: Oh, it's super different. Crisis counseling is aimed only at one thing. It's getting you from a red-hot moment to a chilled-out, please-don't-kill-yourself moment. And that's a very different place from coaching clients. Coaching clients can, of course, go through severe trauma during the process. You never know. I've had cancer patients working with me at the same time that they're going through treatment. It's a very tough time. But your goal is not to calm them down. Your goal is to help them to move forward. And crisis counseling is not doing that at all. It's really just putting a, a dam on the water. The second thing that's very different from it is there are very, very strict rules. Now, there are strict rules within coaching as well. We worked within confidentiality. In advanced coaching, I'm not didactic, meaning I'm really there to start just asking you questions and creating the space for you. But you can still say permission to give you an analogy or something useful that
0: you can use, which is really, really different. And you, you certainly know me. So you would mentioned that during your self-help journey, you went through 26 different coaches. How was that Goldilocks journey? And and what was the right one if there was one singular one for you? And what kind of coach are you as a result?
1: I learned my coaching style by watching the what I didn't like about other people's coaching style. And doesn't mean that I d- I'm discounting any other coaching style. I think that Other coaches are phenomenal. But I understood very, very quickly that there are marketers. They are not coaches. They're not accredited coaches. They're calling themselves coaches. Now, some people have invented a method like Strategic Breakthrough, where Tony Robbins partnered with a licensed practitioner, Chloe Madonis, to create a system. That's okay. I get it. And also, he's been doing it for a very long time. I'm not about to discredit Tony Robbins. However, in many other cases, particularly the very popular ones on Instagram, are people who started a website and are talking about things because they've read three books. And this is absolutely irrelevant to the coaching industry. After taking program after program, I started to realize that their main goal was selling virtual programs to as many people as possible for $99. By the way, that's also why they're $99. And on the other hand, you had very, very seasoned practitioners who are very, very expensive. I learned very quickly that there's a reason for that. People who know what they're doing, of course there are charlatans everywhere, but people who know what they're doing are fantastic at what they do and they are definitely helpful and they're a shortcut. They're like a silver bullet for what you want to do. And that's what helped me to formulate my particular system. Finally, the blind spot that I found was for intense personalities. Most people who deal with intense personalities will immediately go to your goals and start teaching you, here's what you do, just follow, because they understand that you're a doer. I flipped the switch on that, and my method doesn't work that way at all. My method applies or gets you to start moving only at the very end of the program. And the reason for that is I understand that we have most difficulty in feeling and in, in really developing a faith muscle. So we have to take you through a process where you start to believe in what you don't yet see. And that's a little more difficult with superstars. But I only learned that by taking other people's programs and thinking, why isn't this working? What's what's going wrong? With, oh, that's going wrong. Let's try it this way. And then it worked.
0: What kind of education do you get with all the licensing and the certifications that kind of the folks on social media don't necessarily do, but that you also do because I noticed all the accreditations you have and you reference the International
1: Coaching Federation. Okay, so this is a very important point. An ICF-trained coach or an ICF-accredited coach is the gold standard. If you are out there and looking for a great coach, ICF is your best bet. The reason for that is you get lots of different accreditations from coaching institutes that are recognized by the ICF, but the ICF will only accredit you after 100 hours of practice in the basic level and with their own CKA, which is a coach accreditation assessment that takes about three hours. A lot of people don't do this. I actually have no idea why. The months of study, and it's like a couple thousand dollars just doesn't seem relevant to me or a problem to me if you're taking this seriously. But many people do not have accreditation. We today have 20,000 practicing coaches, according to the last stats that I saw, and a very small percentage are properly accredited. This is just bananas weird. The second thing is, and this is the second form of accreditation that I take seriously. I have lots of others, by the way. I just don't particularly find them credible. It's like from the school of growing tulips. Mm is the accreditation as a behavioral assessor. I use Trimetrics, which is a combination of DISC, motivators, and Hartman axiology, and you have to be accredited in order to administer those. You can be an HR professional, by the way, and and have that certification. It's like Myers-Briggs. But that's another one that I use a lot in practice and was very important to me.
0: It's interesting. It it has a parallel to wealth management and finance, where my husband and I talk a lot about how anyone could be a wealth manager and have that role in someone's family and, and kind of financial balance sheet impact. And yet there's no training. You could just say, all right, I'm ready to manage your money. And there's no true accreditation. You can get you know, a CFP equivalent, but not many do. And that's not required, which is just kind of scary. Going back to your coaching. So you deal with so many motivating and inspiring people. You mentioned kind of your business is filled with peak performers and you, you change the traditional business to really focus on a different path for them to extract more for them. Have you found any kind of primary characteristics that you've seen across all of the quote-unquote peak performers that is a kind of a common attribute? And if so, what do they, if anything, generically all struggle with?
1: Yes. (laughs) And I'm writing a book about it. It's called The Superstar Paradox. Do you want to know what The Superstar Paradox is? Would love to. The Superstar Paradox is when your life looks like a freaking perfect checklist and you're still not happy. Like yours did. You're not living to your full potential. This is the classic profile that I see again and again. They're just not perfectly satisfied. And even when they are satisfied, there's a nagging couple of sets of circumstances that are like a bone stuck in their throat. Here are the four principal problems that overachievers... And overachievers, by the way, are about 8% of the population, according to a recent study by the University of Scranton that I really like because they define overachievers as people who are achieving goals above and beyond the norm. You're going to be really interested to know that 32% of people rank themselves as overachievers. So chances are out there, buddies, you believe you're an overachiever too. And yes, you are. Because if you believe you're an overachiever, you've got the same problems I'm about to list off. The first is perfectionism. Perfectionism I know that you guys use it as a humble brag when you're on job interviews. Not a good thing. Really bad thing, actually. Elizabeth Gilbert comically once said that it's an haute couture version of fear. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And I think it's an haute couture version of showing people how insecure you are. Perfectionism is when you're so, so scared that other people won't like you as you are, that you're obsessed with perfecting the self. This is a derivative of narcissistic disorder and it becomes worse and worse with life. What you're trying to cover up is shame and there's no amount of gluten cutting that's going to make you feel better. And that's okay. It's very, very common in overachievers. It's how they've achieved the stuff in their life. The second very common thing that we see from the assessment level, like we can already see it almost automatically in overachievers, it's almost how you identify an overachiever, is an extraordinarily overactive belief in bottom lines. They need things to have ROI to want to do them. As in, even coaching. What am I getting out of this? How fast am I getting it? And how much is this going to cost me? And does it match the value? Now, this, unfortunately, completely disconnects them from the joy of the journey. Life becomes a game of getting stuff. A game of getting stuff does not make you happy because it never gets you enough stuff. That's one of the basic jokes of life. You'll never get it done. I could rattle off the next two, but I'm just going to say that the, the third one is, is is correlated. It's a deep non-focus on happiness. You're focusing in the opposite direction. It's almost as if, as Raj Raghunathan said, if you're so smart, why aren't you happy in his book, which I think has the best title ever. He said, everybody says that they want happiness, but very few people are teaching it to their kids or actually living that way. And with superstars, I've actually almost... Detected that it's not a disdain for happiness, but they really see it as airy, fairy, or woo woo. And the only time they really start paying attention to me, when I started becoming a dark horse and posting all of these cheesy videos of myself in my soul cycle clothes talking to you about happiness, a lot of people thought that I was completely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. My former boss called and said, Do you want your job back? My best friend asked me if I needed any money. It was pretty hysterical. But when you become successful, suddenly they all want to know what you're doing. You see, they're not responding to my happiness. They're not responding to seeing how joyful I am in what I'm doing. They're responding to the success. This is what ultimately disconnects superstars from happiness. And that's what we're here to work on.
0: Well, I can't wait for a Superstar Paradox. It sounds like a bestseller already. Who or what inspires you personally? I am obsessed with three personalities. The
1: first is Madonna. I have loved Madonna since I was a little kid. I adore her. I just saw her last concert. It was a tiny little performance at the Brooklyn Academy of Music with BAM. I think 2,000 people in the audience. It was breathtakingly beautiful show, but she was more political, more open-mouthed, more, I mean, Madonna's always been intense, but it was more of who she really is than ever before, and I admire the crap out of that. A woman of her generation, she is 60-something years old, ladies and gentlemen. To walk in that truth is breathtakingly inspiring and takes so much courage. The second person I adore is not a real person, and that's Frasier. I've been obsessed with the TV show Frasier for more than 20 years. I believe that the reason Coached is a call-in show is because I want to be Frasier. I've always liked the portrayal of decency and intellectual integrity and character on television. And I also really like good writing, and that inspires me enormously. And the third person or thing that inspires me the most is my future husband, Ryan, because he's so serene and calm. It's almost as if the Buddha showed up and just joined us in this lifetime. He's so chill and he's so kind and he's so decent. And I think that when you have that upfront and personal, it's a very expansive thing. It doesn't have to be in very big things. It's just the way he treats animals and the way he treats waiters. That's inspiring every day. I love that answer.
0: When you were growing up, you would mentioned all the travels in your family around the world. Did you have a mentor or role model growing up? Was it your dad? Was it a teacher? Was it a coworker? I'd love
1: to say that it was my dad because he's an awesome person. He deserves a shout out, but it was Madonna. <laughs> it was. My walls were covered. I believe that some people in life are there to expand your mindset about what's possible for you, and she was. And in many ways, I think I've become a performer. I know that coaching is something about healing people, but so is what she does. She's there for so many people out there who need to hear some empowerment in a form of voice. And I think that for some reason, I was listening to that
0: message. A good girlfriend of mine, Brenda, had a a troubled childhood and didn't have any strong female leads in her life. And she said... Madonna was her mother. Madonna was her caregiver. Madonna was her mental support and blanket. And I never understood that until I got older. And I understand it now where if you don't have it, you can still feel it somewhere else.
1: Oh, completely. And you know, the other thing that I want to say that's really interesting is you can experience people through their work. Somebody once wrote at the end of their book, God help me, I don't remember who it was. If you have resonated with these words, then we have already met. And I always think that that's exactly how you want people to feel who have not come into close contact with you. I believe that Madonna and I have met many times. I believe that Frazier and I live together. And Yuval Noah Harari, who I also am obsessed with, the writer of Sapiens and 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, whether he ever responds to my dinner invitations or not, we have met.
0: So we talked a bit about your struggles and, and your marriage or divorce. Can you talk about your most memorable or impactful failure? Just in the spirit of the show, we we talked with the prior guests about one or two just moments or memories that really left an imprint on them and how they really learned from that and grew from that.
1: The most pivotal moment in my
0: life was going through
1: an airport in Zurich seven years ago with my ex-husband. And... He, this is the kind of marriage we had. He used to fly first class and I would fly and coach because we had separate finances and that's what I could afford. Ladies out there, I know you're very envious of how lucky I was. And one time we were waiting for a flight to Tel Aviv and I had to wait and he asked me to join him at the Admirals Club. And when I was trying to get into the Admirals Club, they told me that I didn't have status. Today I laugh at the use of words. Didn't have status. So they wouldn't let me in. And he couldn't let me in because he was just flying first class. He didn't have status. And he looked at me in front of the sweet receptionist who has never met me in her life. And he started yelling at me. You walk around with this fabulous purse like you're somebody, but you're nobody. Now, for anybody who didn't cringe right now, that is an abusive exchange. And it was the first time I realized how many abusive exchanges I had endured This man called me fat at any occasion that he possibly could. I weighed, by the way, 20 pounds less than I do now. And I think you'll agree, in I'm pretty thin. He once locked me in the bathroom and made threats against my cat for some ridiculous reason. He used to shut down all the time and just abandon me in cities when we were traveling because, I don't know, I was speaking to the waiter funny. He was a very abusive personality type. And this was a huge groundbreaking moment for me because I realized, holy bananas, this isn't okay. And then I realized, I think I should walk away. And I did. That was the beginning of the dissolution. But I'm so thrilled that, that happened because I never would have understood what self-love is, which is not confidence. I had confidence in spades. He was right. I did have fabulous bags. And I looked the part it was more popular in Ferris Bueller. But I definitely didn't love myself and certainly didn't treat myself with enough respect because I tolerated somebody speaking to me this way for as long as I did. Thank you for sharing that. It's a pleasure. What are you most proud of so far that you've done? My business. I love this. It's so much fun. I get to do something that I really love for a living. To have even discovered this is a great, great gift in life. I don't take it for granted for a second. But I also love this. This is to wake up supercharged, has to do not only with your own mental state it has to do with where you are applying your energy and to get to live contributing beyond yourself is um indescribable
0: so one thing i just have a like a question for you as advice but you seem so positive how do you stay positive because i think that at times things can get rough and tough and how do you is it something where you have a mantra and you get out of it or how do you Mm -hmm. do that is there a process that you can help our listeners if there is one I'm going to let people know the three
1: things to do to get out of a funk, which is that I'm positive, if not all the time, then most of the time. That is not accurate. In fact, if I were happy all the time, I would be clinically diagnosable. That is a condition. Nobody can experience real joy without the contrast of sadness or angst. The fair truth is, or the more accurate thing to say is that a person who has been coached, certainly who is mindset trained for a very long time, experiences stress for a very short period. That means we're still buying into reality. My mother is very sick right now. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to acknowledge that my mother is sick and feel bad. It's normal. I'm a human being. But I will probably find meaning and manage my way through it with much more resilience than another person simply because I've had more training, not because I'm better than anybody else or was born different. If you out there are suffering from stress right now, there are three things that I recommend with all my heart that you can do to always stay in a better place. The first is this. Recognize where you are and act accordingly, which means if you're really depressed, if it's been going on for a really long time, if you're extremely wary, don't do anything. Give yourself a break. Sleep. Stay home. Take a vacation. This is not the time to act. But if you're just angry, irritated, frustrated, maybe even in blame, which is similar to anger, you're a little higher up the scale and you can work with that. The best thing to do in that position is distract yourself. Here's what I mean by that. If you're a train and you're going 100 miles an hour at a tree, if you try to stop the train, you're going to crash. That's why I mean, if you're depressed, just, I always say, fall, if you're falling out of a plane, just let go. It'll be over in a second. You'll bounce back, I promise you. That's not the time to start figuring out what to do. However, if you're angry, you're just angry and anxious and stressed, you must find a way to distract the train because when you divert the train, it will start to slow down. There are 10 other things you could be doing now that will give you pleasure that are sort of okay. And sort of okay is way better than anger. And when you can redirect, you'll start to move that way. The third step that I can give anybody is you have to find a place outside that is high vibe. One of the things we say to people uh, when they do identify themselves as suicidal on the hotline is can you go somewhere where you can be with people? Go and be with people and not just people. When I was coming out of that Big Deep Funk, I used to go to Soho House, which is a members-only club that plays nice music and has nice cappuccinos and is always buzzing with young people who are starting some kind of empire. Now, that's a high vibe around you. It's real hard to stay bummed out when you're around other positive or buzzing people. I know that this sounds intolerable, but again, we're dealing with people who are just irritating, not depressed. So if you're just irritated, to stay high vibe, be around people who are very high vibe. And that's all I got for you.
0: So, you did a wonderful TED talk recently. Can you share with our listeners more about that, how you chose that topic and the genesis behind it? Thank you.
1: The first TED talk is called You Don't Know What You Don't Know. I thought long and hard about my idea worth sharing. And after years of practice, I have concluded that this is the biggest idea worth sharing, period, the end. If I could cure the world of one disease, It would be the disease that I was stuck with for a very long time, above and beyond the perfectionism and the marriage to bottom line and the status seeking and so on and so forth. And it's believing that I know everything. Everybody believes that they know everything. I know this because there are more than 100 cognitive biases that have been identified since the term was coined in 1972 by another brilliant Israeli named Amos Tversky, Nobel Prize winner, by the way. We believe what we know, what we can take in with our senses, what we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, or what we've learned in our cognitive experience, which is known as cognitive entrenchment, so profoundly that it's extremely hard to teach us something new. And this limits your growth enormously. And instead of making you more adaptable to change, it makes you way less adaptable to change. And so in these global times of extreme change, I thought, if anybody needs to hear this, it's everybody. And this is the one big idea. That's what the talk is about.
0: Well, for those who haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. It was really, really wonderful. Absolutely love it. So Karen and I both love the word Kaizen, which means constant, continuous improvement. I would love to ask you what's next for you. Oh, man. I love that term. Everybody should look it up and should look up the Toyota and
1: General Motors story known as NUMI. It's amazing. Kaizen, I think it should be printed on t-shirts. Continuous improvement just means doing more of what you love and being more attached to the journey of enjoying the doing while you're doing it rather than doing it for a goal. So I don't think so much. I mean, there's always something next on my agenda, right? Like right now I'm working on my first book and I'm working on 2020. And just now I came back from tea with one of my favorite other practitioners, Dr. Ellen Vora, who I met at all the Goop conferences. She's a holistic psychiatrist and we're concocting something. I'm also about to launch my first webinar series with other superstar coaches called Coaches on Zoom Getting Coffee. So I'm always working on something, but what really matters is, are you having fun? And that's what continuous improvement is about, is realizing that you are never going to get it done, and that's what's so wonderful about being here. I have a theory about why people don't like to die. I think that all the drama, all the action, all the good stuff is here, and we don't really want to go to sleep. We like it here. So whenever you're annoyed by all the drama, just remind yourself that one day it'll be over, and you'll enjoy it a lot more.
0: Love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your coaching business?
1: Thank you, Yin. I really appreciate it. And it was such a wonderful conversation. They can find out about me at www.kareneldad.com. That's K-E-R-E-N-E-L-D-A-D. And anybody who approaches me after this program is more than welcome to a free consultation with Coach Karen.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure.